there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. Are you fascinated by aeronautics and space exploration? Then this is the episode for you because my next guest is a senior engineer at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, also known as NASA's JPL, where he spends his days helping to make sure various NASA missions into space, whether to Mars or Jupiter or another planet, get off without a hitch. But before I introduce you to Fred Sirikio, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays to give you an exclusive look into the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. You just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Mars-loving macchiato drinkers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Fred Sirikio, a senior engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Fred has worked at NASA's JPL for almost 26 years and today is a technical group supervisor overseeing the Guidance and Control Systems Engineering Group. Over the last quarter century, Fred has worked on countless projects including the Mars rover, both Spirit and Opportunity, Attitude Control Systems, as well as developing and implementing the Autonomous Control System for a deep drilling mechanism in the Mars Exploration Program. He's also the Cruise ACS lead on the Mars Science Laboratory, completing controller performance analysis, algorithm development, kinematic and dynamic modeling, and simulation of flight system, completing flight operations from launch to landing, including all turns, calibrations parameter, and alignment updates, and TCMS, which I'm not even going to attempt to describe to you because I know I'm going to be wrong. We'll let Fred explain to us what all of that is. And I've literally just scratched the surface on Fred's decades of experience and experiences. If you want to learn more about what he's done, please check out the show notes for this episode. And if you want to learn more about how to break into this dynamic field, check out the show notes to see if Fred's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Fred, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, and it's a pleasure talking. Yeah, it's super early there in Pasadena, isn't it? It is, but I'm up and ready. You're up and ready. Excellent. And what kind of coffee do you like to start your day with? I actually like espresso, the uh, the 10 or 12 uh, strength from (laughs) Nespresso brand. Oh my goodness, a man after my own heart. It definitely gets the blood pumping. So before we get into what you're doing now at JPL, could you please give our listeners a quick overview, Fred, of all the different NASA missions you've been a part of? Most of them that I've been involved with are in the Mars Exploration Program from the rovers from about 18 to 20 years ago 
up until 2020, which is in development right now. The other stuff that I'm involved with is using the same type of landing mechanism that we did for Curiosity, and that we will for Mars 2020, by trying to land on an icy moon of Jupiter. And that program, it's not a project yet. It's in the advanced development stage where we're working on trying to reduce some risks on the technologies in order to make that mission happen. Got it. And by make that mission happen, you mean quite literally the journey to the planet or once it arrives on the planet and starts doing the scientific research? Before it actually reaches the planet, there's some technologies that we need that don't exist right now that are required because we don't know much about the surface of Europa. In order to land there safely, we need to have some hazard detection sensors with the right specifications so that when we get there, we'll be able to touch down on the surface softly in a place that we actually want to go so the scientists can do their their science observations from a place that has meaningful science for them. Got it. And for those who may not be familiar with JPL, with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, it's one of a number of different facilities across the U.S. that NASA is either affiliated with or that it is, I guess, including Houston, Kennedy Space Center, Goddard Space Center. What is JPL? JPL's mission is to perform the robotic exploration of space. So the other centers do the human flight operations, but we do all of robotic space, the non-human side of the space exploration. Understood. All right. And you are a senior engineer, technical group supervisor in the guidance and control systems engineering group. What does that mean? And what do you and your team do? As a group supervisor, I oversee about 12 engineers and I get to see where they are in their various stages of their projects and help them with any technical issues, personnel issues, as well as their career growth over the next 10 to 30 years of their career. And the other half of my time is working on the technical side in the advanced development for the Europa Lander Free Project. Okay. So you started telling us about some of the challenges that you're grappling with right now with respect to the Europa Lander. What is involved with trying to develop the kind of landing system that you're going to need to land on a surface that NASA has never tried to land on before. With missions like Mars, where we've had orbiters that can take very high-resolution images of the surface, now we have a good understanding of what those surfaces look like, and we know where we would like to land. There's both missions from the surface and from orbit that can do science observations at the same time and get a good understanding of what that environment is like. Other places that we haven't been before, the scientists have less of a clear understanding about exact type of terrain, the exact environment that we will see, because it's a new place, and that's part of the fun side of the exploration. But it also means that some of the landing challenges become more unique to the, that environment. Europa also has an extreme radiation environment, worse than space, just like normal space between here and Mars or here and Saturn. So the fact that the computers can get more upsets and different sensors could be corrupted and you might have to have more redundancy and autonomy built on board. Those are the types of challenges going to a new place that we have a little bit of understanding about, but it's intriguing enough that we still want to go there. And so can you break down for us the work that your team is doing? What does it look like? Are they kind of working through spreadsheets that have 
all kinds of questions or tasks that they need to do? How is the work delegated? And how long do you think it's going to take you before you crack the code on this challenge? That's a good question. There's there's different groups who are working on different things, even in the advanced development stages. Things we've already identified is extremely risky. Landing is one of those. So my group is specifically looking at from when we start to approach the European, there's no atmosphere, but very close to the surface of Europa where the radiation really starts to take effect, going all the way to the surface. Like on Mars, we have the entry, descent, and landing phase. Once we hit the atmosphere for Europa, because there's no atmosphere, we have a deorbit, descent, and landing phase. So that's most of the area where we've been focusing on right now because that's the stage where all of our velocity that we have coming into the planet and bringing it to zero so we can land somewhere safely on the surface and somewhere that we'd actually like to go. So the scientists will be happy to, once we've actually placed the lander on the surface, they can start to do their science experiments. So it's all of the phase about observing the surface, fixing our position and velocity relative to the surface so we can start to slow down. And then once we're closer to the surface, picking a safe landing site so we can actually divert there and land somewhere safely. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned that JPL is really the hub of the robotics part of what NASA does. So are you and your team members working primarily doing computer modeling? I mentioned one of the things you do, algorithm development, kinematic and dynamic modeling. And are you also actually working with robotics equipment? So really testing it with the actual equipment, with the actual robotics at JPL. For the orbit descent and landing, we're doing mostly computer modeling and simulation of all of the components down to the sensors and actuators and everything else that we have, along with the environment. We would trick the simulation into having resets at various times, ensure that kind of robustness. And there's a different group who's also working on the surface sampling side of things. And they do have a laboratory where they're taking various types of excavation and sampling mechanisms and digging into some cryogenic ice simulants that have determined we're close enough to the European environment and actually starting to do those types of sampling. So just a technical question or maybe just a clarification, you mentioned that Europa has no atmosphere. How is that even possible? That's a great question. And I don't know the answer to that one, but uh, we have a thicker atmosphere than Mars, but Mars' atmosphere is one one-hundredth of ours, but it's just enough to where it can help us and it can hurt you. Other planets have more dense atmospheres than even Earth, and the moon, for example, our moon, has no atmosphere either, so it's more similar to that than a planet. I had always thought, and I'm really going to show my ignorance here, but I had always thought that NASA's missions to different planets in space had something to do with wanting to know about life forms that may have existed on other planets. If Europa doesn't have an atmosphere and is surrounded by a field of radiation, what is it that you expect to learn there? Europa actually is one of the icy moons of Jupiter, and there's more water on that moon than there is on the entire surface of Earth. Despite the fact that it's a harsh environment, despite the fact that there's an extreme ice layer on top, there's still plenty of liquid water beneath that surface. 
those are things that the scientists do know and from observations from all of the other science experiments that have come before us. But it's an intriguing question for them because just like you said, the search for the answer, does life exist anywhere else other than here, is one that people have been asking since people have had the mental capacity to think about that. And that's been a long time. So Europa is one of the many places that we would love to find the answer to that question. Oh, great. That is so fascinating. Oh, my God. So take us into a typical day for you, Fred. You happen to be in the office super early. I'm not sure if it's only because we're doing this interview today at 7 a.m. your time in Pasadena or if you usually start super early. But can you kind of break it down for us if we were a fly on the wall? What would we be seeing and hearing you do? Some of that depends on the phase of the mission, but normally it starts with some meetings to figure out what the plans are, what the results from the previous month's activities have been, where we're going for the next month or next year. And then it becomes a lot of computer work. Some of that is in PowerPoint, describe what you're about to do and that sort of thing. But some of it is in the simulation side. Then it's, here's the results. Let's get together and talk about what those results mean within the GNC team. And then there's different meetings where we present to the flight system and the project management to say, here's what we've, we've learned. Here's the things that would make our job a little easier. Here's what would make the entire mission work a little better and work those trades out with them. Just so we can present that type of information up to the project. And then they'd weigh all of those trades against the entire flight system, the entire project, just to make sure that we're not GNC heavy in one area and that's causing issues in other areas just because they need to keep the schedule and the costs down in general. That's the business side of things. The fun side is actually doing the work, doing the analysis, and solving the creative problems that come up with trying to do something new to make these missions happen. So GNC, just to be clear, is that the guidance and control team? Correct. Okay. So who do you think should consider pursuing a career at NASA? Those in science, engineering, and those who would like to answer the questions beyond the planet that we're living on. And do you think it's essential that they be really good at math? And what about any other subjects or skills that they need to have before even thinking about applying to a place like NASA? A good GPA is important because we need to make sure that when you get here on the job, whether it's as a scientist, a technician, people who build our thing, contract management, the modelers and simulation folks, the computer scientists, that you can get the work done. And then you also have to have a passion for it in order to make the lifelong commitment to stick with some of these projects. You mentioned that some of these projects can go on for years, for six, seven, eight years does the intensity of the work change when a mission takes off, when the vehicle is in space? Do you end up having to work shifts around the clock? Does that change at all for you and your team? It does. For the GNC team specifically, when we launch, there's still activities that are first-time activities that have to happen. Check out the thrusters, the sensors. We check out all of the different algorithms that we can within the first 90 days usually, making sure that during the commissioning phase that everything works the way we expected it to. If the mission was going to be a seven-year cruise, not all of the people who were involved in the development of that 
GNC system, which stick around for the entire seven years. It goes to a smaller team that does work around the clock for those first few months to make sure that it becomes a critical activity the first time you do anything. But then after that, it goes down to smaller teams where you're not listening to it 24 hours a day, where you get a few hours of data at a time. You look at that, make sure the spacecraft is working properly. And then you come back and you send it some activities to do. And it becomes more of the monitoring phase. If there's a big activity like TCM, which stands for Trajectory Correction Maneuver, to make sure you're really going in the direction you want to and end up in a certain place in time and space where you're supposed to end up, whether that's rendezvousing with a comet, an asteroid, or going in for a landing on a planet or a moon. Also, you make sure that all those things are happening. And during those bigger activities, then the entire larger team will come in. And that's not just GNC team. That's flight software, power, avionics, making sure that while we're doing these critical activities, everything is functioning properly. And then when it comes time for a rendezvous uh, to a planet or a flyby of something, then again, those become more intense activities. But in between those, there's routine maintenance that's kind of going on, returning and checking things out and doing condition, checking sensors and actuators out to make sure that they're all healthy. When did you become interested in space, Fred? As a kid, I think I always have been, I always was. And then there was one time we took a trip to Kennedy Space Center and it was like, wow, this is like a place where real things happen. So it was like the spark existed, but this was like the ignition of that kind of flame and intensity of seeing where the real exploration ends up happening. Do you have a favorite project that you've worked on? or a favorite story of something that happened while you were at work? I imagine there have been a lot of things that have happened that you've had to pinch yourself to say, I can't believe I'm a part of this. The pinching yourself moment, that probably happened when Spirit and Opportunity launched. Before that, it was the intensity of those, because we were doing two rovers, which is really two spacecraft that were going to launch on two different launch vehicles at the same time. So the intensity over that three-year period was a lot. There we were testing around the clock and those sorts of things. So by the time we got to launch, it was like, okay, this is an intense moment. But then one of the people sitting next to me was like, this isn't the test bed anymore. This isn't just one of the hundreds of tests that we've performed on this. This is the real spacecraft. And in 10 seconds, it's going to be off the planet. And it was like, the realization that this thing is really going to be on its way to Mars in the next few seconds, that was really the tingle moment, you know, the goosebump moment when that took off. But then we had to go back, get the second rover ready for that launch, which was just a few weeks later. So it wasn't a lot of time for reflection, but it was like a reality check at that time. Have you had any heartbreaks, any big setbacks that you've had to grapple with and How did you get your head around the importance of going back to the drawing board and trying again? Thankfully, none of the missions that I've on had major failures in this business. That's one of the heartbreaks that happened. The other heartbreak is you've been working on a project for a couple of years and then it gets canceled or it doesn't get past a certain gate to proceed to the next level. And that has happened on a couple of of the missions. So you're fully invested in this and you're working like this is going to be a flight project and get off the ground in a few years. And then for various reasons, the projects get canceled, the funding gets redirected to something else. So you have to step back and say, okay, although this opportunity isn't here, then this will create other different opportunities. So you just have to refocus your effort 
put your time and energy into the next thing you're going to go into. Yeah, I would imagine that hopefully whatever work you were putting into the project that was canceled can be repurposed for a new project. It can. And a lot of times there's projects that do get canceled and resurrected in a few years. They're not starting from zero every time they think of a new project. But it is disheartening that something you've put three or four years into is going to be put on the shelf for another five years. And it may not be you who gets to work on it again. Maybe somebody else, but at least that mission can survive in the future. So you have to see the value in what you have done and see it for what that is. Absolutely. So how does your current feelings about working at NASA compare with what your expectations were 26 years ago, Fred, when you started working at NASA? How do they match up? That is a great question. I don't think I have a great answer for it. But before I started, it was like, I just want to be at this place that does these amazing things, right? And then once you get there, it's like, oh, I get to work on this. I get to fly this spacecraft. I get to do this testing. I get to develop this algorithm or software. Each step across the career had kind of been, oh, I like this. This is an opportunity. Okay, I'll take this. This is an opportunity. I'll take this one. This opportunity went to somebody else, but where this mission got canceled, so I didn't get that. It was more of, I felt lucky about each thing I was able to do and each of the tasks I was given and the projects I got to work on. So the 25 years have gone by fast, which I guess is a sign that I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Fun is still there. Oh my gosh, that is wonderful. So do you feel that your expectations of what it would be like have synced up with the reality of the day in, day out, year in, year out work that you have been doing? I think it would. I mean, there have been challenges with certain projects or people that are everywhere, but those are the rarities as opposed to the more commonplace where the people who are working on the projects with you are just as enthusiastic as you are. And you really are lucky to work at a place like this. And when I give tours or when I go to the JPL open house and I get to talk with people who don't get to work here, that's more of like a reinvigoration time where it's like, you do realize how amazing it is to work at a place like this. I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. That's why I'm here talking to you about it. <laughs> and that's why you've been there for 26 years. Exactly, yes. So what is the culture like? What is the vibe at JPL? It's really more of a, a campus feel, like a university, where there's research going on and there's people riding their bikes around, having lunch on the JPL mall and talking about projects and then after work, they're hanging out and talking about the work they're doing. So it stretches the work into the personal life and they're very intermingled because you enjoy working here and you enjoy the things you're doing and that it just kind of spills over into that, which I think for me, it's the right kind of place and right environment to be. Terrific. So speaking of a campus-like environment, let's flash back to when you were in college. You went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, and you got your BS in mechanical engineering. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated, Fred? No, there are three types of jobs that I was interested in after graduation. One was in space field, space exploration. The other was doing Disney rides sorts of things like amusement park rides, the big stuff. Or in the movie industry, doing the animatronics and the robotics and those types of things. Those are the three things that were interesting to me. And it just turns out that I was lucky to get a job at JPL in one of the three that I actually really was interested in. 
cool. Now you went pretty much straight from undergrad into grad school. You went to the California Institute of Technology and you got your MS in mechanical engineering with a focus on controls. Do you think you would have been able to land a job at JPL if you hadn't gone on to get your master's? I definitely think that the master's degree did help and specifically in the group that I'm in now. During undergrad, I was interested in controls and control systems. But I had only taken like one class into that, which was really more of an introductory thing. Getting the master's degree really did help. What about when you were still at Rensselaer? Were there any extracurricular activities or clubs or part-time jobs or volunteer work that you were involved in that in hindsight you think actually helped you develop skills that have been useful to you in the professional world? The types of clubs and things I was involved with are really more of the extracurricular, non-research, non-engineering related. They were more of balance the stress out of the workload and the course load at the time, which was a good thing. But I don't think that any of those helped get the next job. I tried to get some of the research on campus, but at the time for undergraduate students, it was very limited. There weren't too many opportunities because there's plenty of graduate students who they had and who needed that type of work and were better suited to it because they had already had their four years of undergrad and they had more experience to bring to those types of things. So I was a little disappointed that I didn't get any of those, but I did fill my time with other things that just helped kept the balance of the stress of the workload in college and helped keep myself sane. (laughs) What about internships? Did you have any when you were an undergrad? I did not. I tried to get those two, but they didn't come to me. I had a good GPA, but there's a thousand people applying for one job. So the odds are, aren't really there. So every summer I kept applying for internships at a bunch of different places and none of those came through. So what was your first job out of college and how did you get it? After four years of trying, I interviewed with JPL actually, and I didn't hear anything. And this was getting towards the end of March and April and May. And I'm like, thinking to myself, well, I guess I'm going to have to just work on campus again this summer. My job there was actually painting the dorms because it paid more than doing the research. So I'm like, okay, I'll do this again. Until I realized, well, let me at least call JPL to find out where I stand, if they've made all their decisions, and if they've hired everyone they were going to for that summer. Went on the phone, said that interviewed well, and that they had pretty much hired everyone. So I'm like, well, when you say interviewed well, what does that mean? And she's like, we got a one plus rating. And I asked, is that good? Is that like, out of five or what's the scale? She said one plus is the best rating that you can get. So I asked her, well, if you're going to hire somebody, why wouldn't you hire me? Like someone who scored high. And she's like, well, let me call you back in a little while. So she hung with the phone. She called someone at JPL. And that same day, she called me back saying, give this person a call who's actually in the same section that I'm in right now. Talk to them and see if you'd like to do a summer job. So I called him and he was talking about testing some actuators that would end up on the Cassini spacecraft. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so he's like, okay, that was a Thursday. And I end up flying out that weekend and starting at JPL on that Tuesday because it was Memorial Day weekend. So it wasn't typical for me to like be that pushy. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be at this job today because I wouldn't have gotten that internship that summer. I wouldn't have met the people I've met. I wouldn't have been able to have a 10-week job interview, which is what an internship really is. And I wouldn't have been invited back that summer and turned into full-time. So if I hadn't made that phone call, 
when it was already a little too late for the summer and those jobs had already been given away and it wasn't for that woman to make that connection with the group supervisor at the time, then I wouldn't have this job. So I'm very thankful for my younger self to have done that. Oh my God, what an incredible story. So you picked up the phone and who did you call again? This was the woman in HR who had been involved in the campus recruiting. And I had interviewed with someone on campus. And they get hundreds of interviews, hundreds of applications. So it really was one of 100 who all of them could have been future JPL employees. I wasn't picked that summer, but I asked, is it too late? And basically, she went out of her way to say, well, it's not too late. Let me see if there's someone who can make a job for the summer. Because there's plenty of work. And sometimes those internship opportunities come up late. It's like we don't know that we'll need somebody until May when most of the students by then have already gone off to their summer internships or have accepted them in different places. So she went out of her way to make that connection for me and do that networking. And thankful that she did. So what was it, do you think, Fred, that had you atypically decide to pick up the phone and then to push back a little bit when she said you got a really high score. Because for the four years prior, I hadn't gotten an internship. I was working hard. I wanted to get that next step. I guess this was the end of an entire undergraduate career where I had done pretty well. I had a good GPA. I learned the things in classes. I wanted a chance to like get in the real world, start to apply this sort of thing. And if I hadn't asked then, then just basically saying, okay, I'll try again next year. And I got tired of waiting to try again next year. So what do you think the takeaway is that you could share with our young listeners? Probably one, to not lose hope and get discouraged. That's definitely important because especially with internships, there's a lot of people applying. And even if you're a freshman, sophomore, or junior, there's people who have already gotten their bachelor's and are a couple of years into their master's or their PhD who you're also competing with. Now I see it from that side where it didn't mean what I thought it meant at the time because pool of people is just so large. And it's also okay that if I had taken an internship at a place where I wouldn't have seen myself for 20 or 30 years just to get experience, that would have been another thing I could have tried in earlier years. But for me, it was like I want a space exploration job. So that's what I was focusing on. But there's plenty of experience I could have gotten in other industries that I could have brought to wherever I ended up. For sure. And what I think is so interesting about that example, Fred, is I think sometimes that's what employers are looking for. They're looking for someone who has a fire in their belly and who isn't going to take no for an answer. Because if you think about in the case of JPL and NASA, the work that you're doing, I mean, you're banging your head against the wall a lot of the time looking for solutions to problems that may seem intractable. Yeah, there definitely needs to be a stick-to-itiveness and that kind of dedication and that kind of tenacity. So I have two final time for coffee questions, Fred. If You have a story that you could share with our listeners about a time in your professional life. So since you started at JPL, when you really struggled, it may be that a project that you were working on got pulled. It may be that an aspect of something you were working on kept not working. (laughs) And most importantly, how you got through that challenging time and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. It was actually that first summer that I did end up at JPL. One of the first projects I was given was to measure the stiffness of a certain part that they were using in some mechanical design. And so I'm like, okay, 
I was trying to work through it, trying to formulate the problem because it wasn't set up like a typical exam problem that an undergraduate engineering class. It was, here's a picture and figure it out. It wasn't like a word problem in mechanics of materials where certain material properties were given and assumptions and all that. You had to figure all that out on your own. And as an undergraduate, that's not something that you're taught. That's something that you learn after the class or on some of the more project classes or in graduate school because you have to synthesize the whole thing together. So I was having a real hard time even formulating the problem. And I was getting frustrated because I'm like, this is my first week on the job here. thought it was good. I had the one plus rating. I thought that this is a place I'm meant to be. But if I can't do this, how am I going to be here for more than this summer? So I was getting really, really frustrated, really depressed almost in that first week and just not being able to figure this thing out. So much so that even when I called home, my mom was like sensed the depression in my voice and she started crying. I wasn't even like talking about this, but uh, she just sensed how, how down I was. And so then the next Monday, I talked to the person who gave me the problem and said, I'm having a little hard time starting this thing and getting to an answer. He's like, well, what did you do so far? And I, he talked me through what I had done and asked him a couple of questions. And he's like, oh, is that what you're looking for? And it basically a few seconds of conversation with him to help clarify it, make sure my assumptions were correct, to make sure I understood what he was really looking for. And I was able to come up with an answer over the next hour. And he was like, okay, that's good. Let's try this other thing. So if I hadn't actually asked him for those questions or for clarification to help me work through the problem, I would have left that summer thinking this wasn't the place for me. So it's not just enough to get the job. You actually have to be willing to ask the questions on the job. You don't have to know everything the first day. And if you don't know, it's better to ask than to let weeks go by and not make any progress. So that's the other thing that I learned early, which was it's okay to ask questions, ask for help, clarification, those sorts of things. Wow. You were so much smarter than I was <laughs> because it took me years and years and years to learn that lesson, Fred. I felt like, especially in the beginning of my career, when I was the new kid on the block, that I had to act like I knew it because to let down my guard might give my supervisors pause for why they hired me in the first place. And it wasn't until I got quite a bit older that I realized I could have saved myself so much anxiety and stress and self-doubt if only I had identified maybe a mentor or had gone back to my supervisor and just said, hey, I'm having some challenges figuring this out. Could you give me some advice? That's absolutely right. Because JPL actually now in the past few years, every new employee that comes in, even if they've come in with 10 or 20 years experience from somewhere else, we assign them a mentor. Just one, so they get used to JPL and how we do things and to help them find their way, as well as for every new employee who comes right out of college so that they have someone that they can talk to for their career planning, their advice. They can talk about the frustrations they're having in the current task without someone in their actual task management side of things. They can feel free to talk about those things and get the advice and get the perspective from someone who's been here a little longer. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing that they do that. That's great. And I should say, you have a great quote on your Twitter feed. It says, it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down, but how many times you get up. Why do you have that on your Twitter feed? Because that's the tenacity and that's the type of mentality you need to have because not everything's going to go your way in anything forever. You may get lucky and things are going your way, but you have to be able to get past the difficult times. And that's the thing that 
will enable success. Because there's also those cartoons where there's two people digging in a hole and one guy's turning around and the other guy kept going and the gold is just past the point that the first guy turned around. Those are the types of things where you don't know where success is. And if you stop, you're never going to find it. So it's really working through the difficult times and being able to push through those and get past those. And that's where the resiliency and the success will come from. I love it. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Rensselaer and do it all over again, Fred, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would have probably taken advantage of more opportunities to make myself more well-rounded. I've done it since then, but to where I tried to do things that were not science, not engineering, but just things that were interesting to me, like music or acting or those sorts of things that would be like not school, but something else. Because when I was in school, my job was to focus on school. So that's what I wanted to do. And anything that was not that was just a small piece. But I didn't pursue those with the same level that I would right now, because I feel like I have a little more time to do that. But in school, you also have time. So I would have tried to do those sorts of things to diversify my interests and to follow through with some of those. Wonderful. Well, Fred, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today, time for a couple espresso shots with me and the Time for Coffee community. If any of our listeners want to learn how to break into NASA, into the field of science and research, what Fred has been doing for the last 26 years, check out the show notes to see if his espresso shots episode has already dropped. I wish you tons of luck and just good vibes with the Europa Lander and everything else you're working on, Fred. It's just such a fascinating career. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.